I'm so pleased to have David Strang in the studio today. David is the offshore director at Brand Safway, an international construction company. David spent the first 21 years of his career working as a civil engineer, building bridges in the UK and Portugal. He shares a fantastic insight into transitioning from hands-on engineering to leadership. Enjoy the chat. So a very big welcome to David Strang joining me here today for another episode of Career Stories from the Field. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. So pleased Thank that you. Uh, you could join me. So let's start off. Tell us what your job title is and give us a bit of a, uh, an overview of what that, that really means. I'm the UK Offshore Director for Brand, which is Brand Energy and Infrastructure Services. So we are a service provider. Um, and there's no surprise offshore, it's to the off offshore industry based in Aberdeen. So we support all the operators with our sort of scaffolding, insulation, painting, deck crew services offshore. And I am the director of the organisation that looks after that from Aberdeen. So um, not so much hand-on anymore, but more the, the, kind of the strategy, the governance, the commercial responsibility and ultimately the safety responsibility for our employees working offshore and our management team onshore who do all the planning and procurement and preparation for the works. Fantastic. Okay, so you talk about offshore, and for those in the know, we'll know that it's relating to oil and gas. Uh, does it relate to anything else regarding energy? Yeah, we, we, we work uh, both with renewables and, um, and oil and gas. Obviously, oil and gas is, is a, quite a divisive thing at the moment, but uh, it still keeps the lights on and the cars running but uh, yes we support the renewables industry again offshore with the wind turbines on mostly in the the, the coating world where we maintain the integrity of the pylons for um, wind generation or, or electricity generation from wind i should say mm. so it must be nice to have a, a foot in the green camp as well Yes, it's a considerably smaller, so commercially it is not as viable at the moment, but uh, the world is beginning to move and I see the investment now from particularly some of the large energy companies or the large oil companies now in renewables will mean uh, more and more our, our work will divest into renewables and support because in the day we are a commercial business, we will always run and follow where the money is and if the money is in renewables, we will be in renewables. If the money's in nuclear, we're in nuclear, so it's it's a supply and demand business. So whilst there is demand for the product, we will support the, the operators in maintaining the integrity of the assets. It's, it's a busy time because whilst the, the the assets, which which I mean is the, the oil platforms, are most of them are towards end of life, that it's still the kind of 10, 15, 20 year programme, but now 
the investment is less, but the, the actual and the integrity, as what we talk about, the integrity of the pipe work and everything else to make sure that all the hydrocarbons stay in the pipes makes it actually a more important role than it ever used to be because of the environmental consequences and, and God forbid, the safety consequences. Mm, really, really interesting. So you talk about brand and, and obviously you're the director of brand in, in Aberdeen. Give us a, an overview of what brand is. And we know it's, well, I know it's a bigger beast. Give us, give us some context in terms of the organisation that you work for and the other services that the, the business supplies. I work for a division called Brand Energy and Infrastructure Services, which is part of the, the brand Safeway or Safeway group, as our American owners like to call it. So Brand Safeway is a venture capitalist owned business, uh, approximately $4 billion turnover per annum, 40,000 employees globally. So part of a very, very, very large organization. But uh, as most organizations do, they break down into operating operating divisions and my operating division is um, onshore in the UK, uh, offshore in the UK and offshore what we call internationally so anywhere offshore that is not basically the Gulf of Mexico we cover so this is covered by three directors as, as I said I mentioned I'm the, the, the UK offshore director we have a Netherlands offshore director who covers both Netherlands and international business and we have an onshore director who covers obviously the onshore uh, or businesses. So onshore we are, we are predominantly doing access for again the petrochemical, steelworks, um, pharmaceutical industries. Our international portfolio is very similar to mine. It's predominantly oil and gas, albeit down in Great Yarmouth, there's, there's a, a, a more mature renewables business. So we do have uh, significant customers in, in the renewables world down there. So it is all the same service lines. So ultimately the access, which we call is either rope access support, uh, scaffolding or our patented quick deck. So we, we innovate with our products to try and give us you know, advantages against our competitors where we have different products which offer slight advantages and that's um, so what we do. So predominantly it's we don't diversify into industrial cleaning or um, other um, sort of light engineering works. We do stick to just our core businesses which is the access, insulation and coatings business. Okay, interesting. So you're part of a much bigger international beast which must make life a bit interesting but let's talk about you uh, there in Aberdeen give us a walk us through a bit of a day in the life or maybe a week in the life of uh, of the director role yeah the, the real attraction for me is there's there's probably no two weeks are the same uh, sometimes that's nice uh, I generally quite like a little bit of variety sometimes it can be problematic because you never quite know what's going to occur but we get a in the maintenance world and in any kind of business you have the day-to-day -day regularity we obviously run budgets we have to work to budget so we're always managing our performance commercially ultimately that is um, so we, we take a, a close focus on the performance and we obviously manage safety and safety is one of these difficult things that actually a quiet day is a good day but you never quite know what may occur so whilst you you plan and you 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 train and you you, you coach your the workforce to hopefully 
not to have any incidents occasionally they can uh, upset your, your your day or upset your week uh, and you have to react to certain things but so typically uh, a week is is the, the 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 knowns which are the commercial pieces the the general engagement and obviously trying to develop new business uh, meeting new clients um, understanding what clients are looking for and trying to work out where we can get a slight advantage on our competition. We work in a very, very competitive market where there isn't a lot of margin, uh, which is the kind of the how we bid jobs. So how much money we can make on a job is, is less and less. Therefore, we have to be a bit more creative and a bit more innovative on how we actually can um, make things different. So again, I'm, I'm that motivates me. The, the continuous improvement uh, is one thing I do sort of naturally hone to where we will take a, a regular activity. I'll review it, ask a team to review it. And we get as much data as possible. We analyze the data. And then from that, we'll then develop a strategy. So you have strategic pieces ongoing in your, in your weekly, which we will be more um, cyclical, they'll come around as and when you want to do. You'll have your routine sort of calls, which are the normal check-ins with uh, stakeholders. So I report to my line manager and I have my management team report to me. So we're all communicating on Typically, what we would talk about is like issues, which are obviously problems we have at the moment, uh, risks, which are problems that might come to us uh, and what we can do against it, uh, areas where people need support in the organisation. Some parts of the organisation can be particularly busy and may require support. So again, I work closely with, with Great Yarmouth office. So again, if they've got a busy tender workload, we can sometimes spare a project manager to, to help out in, in the Yarmouth team. And likewise, if we're under pressure, we will uh, ask for support as well so again asking for support through the organization and lastly we can we probably check in and, and share successes where we've, we've had um, good wins for tenders or we've done work particularly well or anything that we can learn from so we, we help try and share information so again it's a sharing of information so whilst some people might think it's just meetings for meetings sake there's generally a good information share because we do work remotely, but as part of a large organization. So you're very much dependent on predominantly electronic uh, meetings, but uh, where possible face-to-face -face as well. So yeah, it's, it's a varied bag, but it predominantly follows around checking in on safety performance, checking in on commercial performance, and looking after what's going to come tomorrow, basically. Really interesting. Really interesting. So you talk about some of the elements that you enjoy, such as variety and continuous improvement. Is there anything else that you particularly enjoy about your role? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely imperative that you enjoy what you do. You have to, you know, the day you dread to come to work is the day you should consider changing jobs. Um, I think um, whilst, unfortunately, working lifetimes are getting longer, uh, I, I've been fortunate, uh, I consider myself really lucky, I've always enjoyed what I've done. Um, so you, you, you have to find your own motivators. So yes, making things better, continuous improvement is one of my, my biggest motivators. But generally, uh, engaging with people, I, I, as, I, as I get older and more mature in my, my organisation, um, you, you get the ability to offer advice. Sometimes our more junior employees don't take that advice, but you're always able to offer advice and mentor and coach. So I like to develop people. I like to see people taking um, 
the opportunities that are presented to them and where they're not sure checking in but really just so yeah people development is, is, a, is a big one for me which is difficult sometimes with the pressures of work where um, you always try and get the the naturally finished person for a position rather than take the risk on maybe promoting somebody who's not quite ready and supporting but that's the balance we I, I take and that's where I will manage my risks to the business um, generally we will always try and promote within so it's a big part of my business or my day-to-day -day is to make sure we've got the right people so um, you know we are a people business we only we can only do what we do by employing and engaging with people um, fortunately there is no robots that can build scaffolds at the moment albeit there will be some coming soon I'm sure but at the moment we deal with people and we have to manage people absolutely now that's really interesting so You've not, of course, been uh, uh, in this role your entire working career. Um, how about taking us back to the beginning? Where did it all begin? Right. Wow. Uh, test my memory now. Um, I have uh, been, again, as I consider myself very fortunate, I um, go right back to the start. I was in my second from last year at school doing in Scotland, we do a thing called higher grades, uh, and I made a complete mess of it. Absolute car crashed my hires. Um, and therefore took the, the opportunity to look to join the RAF. Uh, I was passed my, all my aptitude tests and my medicals and was waiting for a position to open up for me when the RAF suggested that because I was resitting my hires, why didn't I resit my hires and come in at officer class rather than going in at the non-commissioned level? So that pause because uh, at that time I would have to have signed up to 9 or 12, I think it was 12 or 15 years at that point as a 17-year-old. It was, um, But it was something that interested me. It was a, a way out of school because clearly myself in school was not the best thing. I'm not an academic. I'm much more hands-on. So at that point I then discovered a thing called civil engineering, which seemed quite interesting. Uh, constructing things. I've always enjoyed building uh, Lego or any construction stuff. So I've always enjoyed building things. So I discovered a thing called civil engineering and um, I did my hires in, in my final year and was fortunate enough to get the grades that I needed to go to university to do civil engineering. So I did a degree in civil engineering and to be honest, I've never looked back. I uh, could apply all my common sense, sort of practicality, things to make things better. Uh, I was building things. I was engineering, solving problems, which really just it worked for me. And as a, a young uh, graduate, I was working away from home because that was a nature of the beast. And it didn't feel like work. I would stay in the office and prepare for the next day because that's what I did. I enjoyed it. And it just seemed to really click. So I, I had 21 really good years in civil engineering where I travelled most of the UK. I got to work abroad as well. I did a significant bridge in Lisbon in Portugal uh, as a young engineer, quite unheard of to be sort of 26 and managing a section abroad. Um, but just really what I consider to be fortunate and I'd say the, the role of the dice got me these positions but I think also my natural fit with the job worked well so uh, it never felt like work it just felt like another adventure and we did projects to projects and um, I, I bore my family because I can drive up and down the country and it's either a bridge or a sewage works that I may have built or may have worked on um, and that's the, the, the amazing thing is that you, you drive in the country and see things that you've done 
um, from you know from power stations to bridges to sewage works to you name it. I've probably built it. Um, and so, so that, I did 21 years in civil engineering, and as you progress, um, ironically, Britain's got a funny way in construction where to be financially rewarded, you have to go up the ladder and you become more and more involved in project management and you become more involved in senior management and, and the, the, sort of the politics that that brings and you, you get less and less involved in what you loved, which was the engineering and the problem solving. Ironically, I worked with um, several French companies in my time and they actually reward people for what they can do. Um, Britain seems to have a slightly different view on how they do that. But So I got to the stage where I was um, the project manager on the fourth rail bridge, which is a iconic structure in, in outside Edinburgh, which crosses, where the railway crosses from uh, Lothian into Fife. Now, that got me involved in a, uh, sort of scaffolding and painting and, and minor steel repairs. And at that point, I was then approached by a, a company interested in me looking after the the, the a contract of the, of the aircraft carriers that were getting built in the naval port at Rosyth. Um, I I was unsuccessful in that job. Uh, they appointed it to somebody who had more marine or not well yard experience, which is understandable. But the company that did interview me kept my CV and then phoned me and asked if I would fancy a job in Aberdeen, being an operations manager for them, doing painting and insulation and coatings offshore. It was a company called Cape, which have subsequently been bought by Altrad, so they're now, they're now owned by Altrad. But yeah, so I realised that actually I could do a very, very similar job, but be slightly financially better off. Uh, by that time, I, my family had actually moved to, um, my son and I were now living in Aberdeen, so it made sense that uh, I could then obviously just travel daily rather than sort of twice a week to my job and live away from home. So again, it worked with me. I, I joined uh, Altrad and did uh, 10 years of, with them uh, doing the kind of project management onshore, but really using the, the good project governance and skills that I'd learnt as 21 years as a civil engineer, uh, I was quite surprised at how what I perceived as really well-organised, well-run organisations in oil and gas, how how lacking in some of the basic skills were. So I, again, was able to, to not excel because of my skills, just excel because I think they, were, <laughs> they weren't as good as me. So, um, yeah, I did 11 years with them and latterly did two significant projects. Uh, ironically, I joined Altrad to head up their decommissioning because the plan was in uh, 2011 they were going to start decommissioning um, oil platforms. Um, and as to, to date, I have taken two oil platforms out and I've put two oil platforms back in again. So um, we haven't really removed anything in my, in my lifetime for the North Sea. So, yeah, and then that was it. So, so uh, 10 years with Altrad. Uh, and then was approached to head up Brand in Aberdeen, who were on the verge of winning a significant contract as part of a consortium um, with two other partners uh, to do the, the, the same sort of whole maintenance suite from mechanical, electrical, instrumentation and the uh, coatings and insulation on a, on a major operator in Aberdeen. So um, I... 
decided it was time to, for a new challenge and left uh, Altair after 10 years and joined Brand um, three years ago now. So I've been in seat for three years and um, again with any changes you need a little bit of time to find your feet, find the rhythm of an organisation, understand how it works to try and change things for the better or adapt yourselves to work within the organisation and now I'm um, in, in Aberdeen. So yeah, but I look back fondly to my sort of 21 years of uh, bedding in as a, as a civil engineer and it's uh, certainly something that uh, I would uh, recommend. That's really, really interesting. And actually, as you were talking there, I was thinking, I want to know more about these 21 years. So you, you talk fondly of them. Let's let's focus in on a project, maybe the, the bridge in Lisbon. How about giving us a bit of a, an overview and insight on, on what a day-to-day, day in the life of a civil engineer is? Because, you know, Again, it's a title that's that we are aware of, we understand, but what does that actually mean? Civil engineering is a, a very, very diverse career. Uh, there's opportunities to work within local authorities, local government, uh, for consultants and for contractors. Um, I work for a civil engineering contractor. I naturally prefer the, the, the building of things as opposed to the designing of things. So I, I did do design in university. It was certainly not my strongest point. Um, I was most surprised when I did pass my final year with a, particularly the designing because I realised I was when I was in the exam I was, I was using reinforcement uh, steel that we'd never used before because of the size. So I clearly got my, my, my load takeoffs wrong. But clearly what I did was okay and, the, and it would have stood up but it's not, not necessarily the, the most financially viable option so I lend, in, lend myself my skill sets lend to contracting where we are the ones that build the, the roads the bridges sewage works whatever typically they are not buildings uh, I would say there's a there's a there was always a bit of a, a rival between construction which used to be building and civil engineering and you know, I don't do buildings. I haven't done any major buildings at all. But civil engineering uh, is is a, a really it's rewarding in the premise that you you if you're there from the start you break the turf. So you're physically digging the topsoil up um, to put in foundations for uh, you know some of the ones I've done was in, in Portugal. There was no turf to be cut because the section that we did was a six kilometer section which was in the middle of the river, uh, the River Tejo or Tegas, as we call it in Portugal, was in, the bridge was 18 kilometres from the north side to the south side, a, a phenomenal bit of investment by the Portuguese and European government. Um, so my day started initially on, on the piling, so we were doing all the the piles, which are the, sort of, the columns that go into the ground to support um, the bridge. Now, only the Portuguese would build a bridge at the widest part of the river uh, in, in an area that is prone to earthquakes. Uh, historically, uh, Lisbon was destroyed, I think, in the 17th century because of, of an earthquake. And being natural uh, seafaring people, they ran to the sea and got engulfed in a tidal wave. Um, but So, yeah, the piles that we were banging into the river, the, the longest ones got to 100 metres. So, um, quite incredible long tubes of steel which were 1.7 metres in diameter, and there's eight of them under every pillar that's on the, the bridge in, in Tegas. So I did um, initially all the, on all the foundations for the 81 piers that we built, uh, and the, my other uh, partners built the caissons, which 
hold the piers and then the piers which then hold the bridge deck and then we put the bridge decks on top of them. Now I was fortunate I worked with a Dutch subcontractor who made me look very very good so one secret is if you're going to get people surround yourself with good people and it makes you look good so their performance is really good so my performance was good as well and after I completed the foundations they moved me on to the the superstructure which is the bridge decks but um, I specialized in two sections which balance cantilever bridges which was absolutely phenomenal proper engineering where you literally glue a bit of concrete a lump of concrete typically between 120 and 150 tons on one side and you put reinforcing bars to pull it back in and you then stick another 100 tons on the other side to balance it and you build out and we built out to 60 meters each way cantilevering this way and then you build from another pier to meet it so proper proper uh, engineering uh, working for a for a, a french expert so it's really really good for me something we could never do in the uk because of of, of predominantly because of our climate and uh, the excessive use of salt on roads the steel doesn't like salt and when things corrode when they're balanced cantilevers they tend to fall down so that they don't really do it much in scotland or certainly not in britain but that was always a thing with uh, for me and i remember i hauled it quite a lot in portugal still and uh, we flew out of Lisbon uh, one year. My son, who was probably only three or four, looked out the window and said, oh, Daddy, Daddy, there's your bridge, and pointed down to the Vasco da Gama Bridge in Lisbon. And then as we flew into Edinburgh, uh, we passed the fourth rail bridge. And he looks out the window again and happened to be on the same side and goes, Daddy, Daddy, there's your bridge. And I think at that point you realise uh, what, as a civil engineer, you do, how you know thousands of people will use your bridge and never know you existed, but you know without your input um you didn't you, you connect you connect things with bridges so i've always done you know bridges have been my i would say my specialism that's what i was re renowned for that's what the con most contracts i got involved on were albeit i've done i've done sewage works i've done power stations um but yeah predominantly bridges is, is my career but really as a reward not I say rewarding. I'm looking back 20 years ago with, with rose-tinted spectacles. Portugal, I was doing 12 hours a day on the river, six, sometimes seven days a week. Uh, but um, you, you play hard and you work hard and uh, it, it's all good. That's really fascinating. Uh, and it, it's, it's a brilliant thing to be able to make a mark that lasts lifetimes, isn't it? You know, as you say, people drive over that bridge or use the bridge every day. And uh, that you played a big part in, in, in putting it there. It must be very rewarding. I hope you're enjoying David's story. David has taken a fairly organic route in his career development. He's moved on to new opportunities when they've arisen. This approach is great for embracing roles you might not have considered previously and can push you sideways or upwards out of your comfort zone. If you have taken a similar route in your career, but the next career opportunity is just not forthcoming, then it might be time to get strategic. If you're feeling stuck and don't have a sense of what your career holds, it's time to look to the future. Imagine you've already reached that dream job, or maybe you've retired. Now think of the legacy you would like to have left. Work it into a picture and try to create a vision of what you've achieved. Now, start working backwards. 
What jobs would you need to have fulfilled to achieve your vision? Work it right back to where you are today. Now you can start to get strategic and plan for not just your next role, but the role after that. Think about the skills, training and knowledge you might need to develop in the next couple of years. This should help you focus and hopefully ignite your mission. It'll give you control and not leave your career to fate. Now, back to David. What I'm interested in is obviously you talk fondly about the 21 years and you talked about to be able to progress, you almost had to wave goodbye to the sort of physical engineering that you were so enjoying. In hindsight, would you have developed and progressed in a different way that allowed you to continue being quite hands-on? Um, the, the, the honest answer is I don't know. I think I look back and I make that assessment that I had reached where I went to with you know no longer being an engineer, now be more into management and then ultimately into leadership. So um, I always wanted to progress my career and I think certainly in the UK to progress your career financially as well as as, as satisfactorily you, you have to move up the ladder um, so the move was probably inevitable uh, because I do with the kind of projects na nature in my head I do have a short attention span so I do need challenge and I need um, different things and, and, and with management you get quite samey so engineering is great because you change projects, but once you reach a threshold where you're technically very good, but then people start to employ you for your non-technical skills, which is the, if you want, the, the, the weaker part of, of as, a, as you start life as a weaker part, and you then have to develop these skills, uh, they become challenges to me where, yep, I need to develop certain things because things aren't working, and uh, whilst I could always always you know find solutions for how you pour concrete or how you get concrete into certain shapes um how you could get the people to do it for you and how you could motivate teams was always not you know it's one of these things that well how do you get this the best out of people so you then realize that there's a whole world called called leadership and management and there's actually people who coach people to be leaders and things like that and so there's a whole world of uh, new skills to learn that excites me so i think it's a little bit whilst i felt i i left uh civil engineering uh civil engineering was probably leaving me because of my own career progression because ironically the the more senior in any organization you get the more remote from the the core business unless it is pretty much your own business and you can still dabble around with what you want to do but yeah so i think the i wouldn't do anything differently uh, i consider myself very fortunate i i I, I provide for my family. I provide for myself uh, job satisfaction. So there's nothing. I there's, you know I, I I don't brag, but I I have no regrets to anything I have done career-wise. Um, that uh, you know I don't panic about things don't work. You don't need to force things. Things yes, you may miss opportunities, but they're not necessarily better opportunities. They're just different paths. So it's really important that you don't sweat things that don't matter you know things will work out things generally work out and if it's and i kind of take a little bit of you know fatest view that you know if it's meant to be it will be and if it's not don't worry about it you'll move on because the, the roads and pathways and opportunities and 
people you meet, you never know what will occur. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't have any regrets. Uh, the path I've taken uh, wasn't pre-planned. It wasn't predetermined. Um, it was just a lot of it was what was right at the time. And uh, I think the only thing I ever did was I lifted the phone to a project manager I worked for uh, at a, a power station in Kidby near Scunthorpe who I knew was going to Portugal and said is there any chance of me getting out to Portugal and he said yeah no worries and that was probably the only time I've ever called in a favour if you want and, and sometimes so yeah sometimes you need to call in favours but um, and if he said no I would still be building a sewage works in Dundee and I would still be relatively happy, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I wouldn't change anything, no. I think that's, that's fantastic. And uh, I think you've just highlighted something which is so important, which is keep your eye open for opportunities when, you know, be at the right place. Uh, be talking to the right people when opportunities arise. Be the person that uh, that they think of when they when they want they want you and someone like you and their team. And equally, pick up the phone if you really want something. Reach out, be proactive, take take some control over over your career and the next steps. I think that's, that's a great uh, reflection and, and bit of advice. And talking about advice, for anybody, you know, who's starting out in their career uh, or maybe even looking to, to change career, what advice would you give them? regarding a movement into civil engineer regarding maybe uh education or skill development what what advice would you give yeah i think there's there's no right or wrong answer sorry so my my view is that uh, you have natural abilities and you'll have learned skills and understand where they are transferable because that must be easier if you ultimately hate what you do absolutely change what you do but I think it is important to not to continue to reset the clock when you move companies I think there's a real danger and I look at my son and I worry will he keep jumping company because that's what he wants because he never quite truly is not been as lucky to find a vacation I think you have to realize what you're naturally like and if you I would think even consider it's never too late to speak for career guidance if you if you are looking for you know everyone thinks oh my god career guidance that's what we got when we we're 16 at school and I was going to be a librarian or something but no please go back speak to about career guidance and um, find out your natural skill sets what might interest you um, but then if you are moving move for the right reasons um, there's a, a a danger people trying what we call chase the dollar you try and move for financial gain. Um, financial gain is nice at a certain point. Uh, it's an essential at a certain point, don't get me wrong, but you will never get satisfaction by continually chasing and changing jobs. Sometimes learning a little bit more about yourself, a little bit more about the organisation, a little bit how, more how you play and adapt in that organisation will, will bear bigger dividends at the end because... I would imagine if you look at most of the senior management, they're not, okay, some businesses will import senior managers because of the need, but I would guarantee most of the senior management in any organisation have got some pedigree with that company or similar company. So leadership skills are transferable, management skills are transferable. Once you leave the technical world where I came from, 
really it becomes easier. People can do my job because it's it's about the people, a little bit commercial, a lot about safety, but really the technical becomes less and less important. So don't think because you're technically brilliant, you're going to be a great manager. So um, education wise, you know, again, if you really want to progress your career, I would certainly look at, uh, which is rich come for me because I am not an academic, but, uh, you know, there's very good MBAs and if they're right for you, again, I wouldn't, I've got people who say I'm going to do an MBA and it's just because they want to do an MBA. Now, I really question the value in doing a, a, a master's for the sake of a master's. It should really be enabled to you. Now, I also um, work with people who, particularly in oil and gas, where who may have not, uh, a, lot of, a lot of guys come from the forces. They are employed because of their discipline and their, their methodology, but they don't have degrees and therefore will hit a certain level in, in a ceiling. So sometimes an MBA may assist or, or a night class or a degree or, or so yeah I think everything has to be the right reason and it should be first and foremost you've got to think it's the right for you if you start doing things for your for other people or a, a short-term whim um, you'll never I don't think you'll get truly satisfied what you're looking for. So that's really really great advice I think um you know, you said early on that you loved doing Lego, you loved building things and, and being a civil, a civil engineer didn't feel like work. It felt more like play. So for other young people that are that maybe also enjoy building Lego and, and building things, what advice would you give them if they were interested in dipping their toe into civil engineering or finding out uh, if that was the right course for them? How should they go about finding out whether it is a vocation they want to pursue. That's that's a tough one. I, I don't. I I was again. I could, you know, repeat myself here, but very lucky in. I stumbled across what I wanted to do and it worked for me, I think. It's trying to understand or trying to get as much information or get job list, understand what job you might interest in and actually how you get to do that job. Is it, is it through you know, various, is, is it a special degree, um, you know, or, you know, because so many universities now are, are, are so obsessed with vocational degrees, which I would always say is, is, is the right thing, but uh, I think equally having time doing non-vocational degrees can actually open doors as well, so I think the world of work, there is there is no, there is, I don't think there is a right reason uh, or a right way or a wrong way, I just think it's trying to get as much information as possible. Um, I assume now nowadays with the web it must be exceptionally easy to do because everything is online when I was uh, well I'm not even going to say what, what was around when I was uh, um, looking for work but it certainly wasn't the web but um, no I, I don't know I, I don't know the answer I think really trying to get as much information uh, on careers and uh, what you think people do and then even speaking to them you know I would imagine most people um, certainly even through you know LinkedIn platforms will happily share and mentor or, or give guidance to people and what they might or might not do so uh, through internships through summer placements meet people speak to people um, if nothing else you start to discount things. Is there anything specific you would add to that regarding civil engineering? Yeah, so entering into civil engineering is um, I, I haven't checked for for many years. I you know I, I assume the most straightforward way is through a, a, a degree, 
and then and as a graduate now i know when we were working when i was when i was working in my summer placement um, i was actually on, on the dumbling bypass we had um, guys who worked with us who were full-time employees with at that time it was bar for beauty but they were also doing um day release so they were doing uni university or college courses one day a week so they were learning to do their, 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 their diplomas or national certificates while they were working so um, employers uh, have many different entries into how to work with them and say I think the most employers now are really you know realize the shortfall therefore are much more amenable to, to working with people so either either yeah uh, university through a, a graduate program or uh, through job placement because I think most civil engineering and you will get to a point where they are looking for degrees but that's not necessarily a blocker but you then embark on the professional qualifications through the institution of civil engineers um, now you can do that through the associate member route or the chartered membership route. So I mentioned before, I have, I have no regrets, but my only regret might be I never became a chartered engineer uh, when I could. Uh, but that's just because it required me to do too much work after work. And writing reports is work to me, therefore it didn't happen naturally. So yes, I know, in terms of access into civil engineering, I would um, check with universities, check with employers, um, because again, working as a consultant, working as a in local authority, they would normally prefer graduates. I think uh, working for contractors, there is often different opportunities because again, they employ you for your practical abilities as opposed to necessarily your academic abilities. Fantastic. Just a couple of a couple of final questions, and I don't mind know if you mind sharing with us. But I'm aware you're dyslexic. Um, how have you coped with that over over your career? Um, I would say typically you mask it. You, 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 as a dyslexic, you become very good at covering it. That's I would say a good trait of a dyslexic. They can manage things differently. Um, I certainly struggle with the the, the written word uh, in MASP. I, I also struggle because I don't do much much reading. I've never done reading privately. Uh, for for you know, reading is not relaxation to me. Uh, therefore, you know, my own sort of grammar structure is not the strongest but the good thing is in terms of when you work in industry you write things the same way often so you actually then learn how you phrase sentences how you write letters how you write emails you learn just because that's the style and if you read a good email that resonates with you you might keep it because actually you can use it again so um yeah, I, I was fortunate that I say I've obviously got a mild dyslexia, which was never proven. And by the time it came, really came to the surface, was I was in my final year at university, and I took the view that uh, in 1990 you don't need that stigma. And so um, I'm the only one that can read my notes. Um, so I, I, if I do go to a meeting, I can't just I can't use the, the newfangled tablets because it needs to be switched onto type. So you you do you can you do different ways, but um, I would say my dyslexia probably has benefited me more than it's hindered me because it, the way I think and the way I process information, I'm allowed to go all over the place and think laterally, think upside down, think inside out and, and come up with different solutions. So I would argue that as an engineer, it's probably served me better. And even as a manager, because sometimes when you're looking for solutions to problems, you actually, I can view things differently. 
uh, from other people. So in my case, I would say it's probably been to my benefit as opposed to my... Because nowadays with computers and spell check and, yeah, word and grammarly and everything else you've got, you can, yeah, you can conquer most things, but you can never, ever program that into somebody's brain. Absolutely. And I ask you that question because obviously, you know, you have a senior leadership position and for young people out there who might also be struggling with such such an issue as dyslexia I think it's quite inspirational to see you in this position and how you've actually just described how you feel it's benefited you so thank you really so much for sharing that so final question what's next yeah so what's next um I don't know I I uh, I never I find these questions sometimes quite difficult and I, I, I do admire people who have really succinct, smart answers but I, because I, my career has never been predetermined, I have certain personal goals which probably are taking more of a a, a, a focus than ever um, you know, I, as I reach, as I go towards my retirement, I have a, a one eye on what I want to do after work, uh, but I'm not checking out now, so I think as long as I um, have the same fire uh, and get up and, and you know make a difference and feel that uh, what I do makes a difference and it's, and it's worthwhile and I'm satisfied, I will carry on doing things. Um, I may, um, you know, I've now been doing this for, what's that, 20, that's 12 years now. So I did civil engineering for 21 years, this for 12 years. Um, maybe I will turn into doing more more career advice or, or consultancy in terms of development of, of, of people um I, I there is again um i, I work on the, what's what will turn up by uh, there's other opportunities i've had career-wise I've, I've, I've done an interim uh, position on a, on a significant contract at the moment I'm, I'm working on where i'm looking after the whole project which has been interesting but it's given me a, almost 12 months out of my normal job which again refreshes and recharges and gives me different ideas so i think for me the i i don't need to rule the world i enjoy what i do i enjoy time with my family um, all the sort of cliches, but it is about uh, you know, ultimately you have to keep enjoying what you do. So whether that be work or whether that be on a golf course or whether it be fishing, whatever you know, I, I not not that I do either of these, but uh, anyway. But no. So for me, um, I will continue doing what I do as long as I keep in, enjoying it. And when I don't enjoy it, that's when we will start thinking about things again differently and that's when maybe the door opens and somebody offers you something different and you're in the right place to accept it well if the time comes where you want to do career and people development uh, just give me a shout maybe you can uh, we can set up think forward in uh, Aberdeen well thank you so much for joining me David I've really enjoyed our chat and I'm sure that when that next opportunity arises you'll grasp it and be a true success so very best of luck again and thanks for joining me Thanks for listening to Career Stories from the Field. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. I've got many great guests still to come in this series, so make sure you follow the podcast so you don't miss out. Okay, well, until next time, bye for now.